comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. I'll read it aloud for us, and you can follow along. Hear the word of the Lord. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. In the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. This is the word of God. You know, during our summers here, uh, summers are pretty lax here, I think, because we usually take a break from our regular ministry activities. Our community groups take takes a break. Uh, part of the reason is for this is because uh, so many people travel during the summers, so it's just hard to get on a consistent schedule. But the other part of the reason for doing that is just to give people a break uh, in the summers and give people a little bit of a rest who are, who are serving. But I think more than a physical break, Ultimately, what we need is we have to recognize that we need uh, spiritual renewal from our hearts. And in order for us to have uh, continue on doing the works of ministry uh, with a sense of faithfulness, uh, I think our hearts have to be in it. We have to be connected to the living God. We have to experience his grace and his mercy because worship and mission are closely aligned. And without meaningful worship in our lives, without meaningful devotion to God, without a meaningful relationship with God, uh, I, th- I think we lose the impetus to begin to engage in meaningful missions. So as our summer winds down and as the month of August winds down, I thought we would just look at this topic of renewal by looking at a specific period in the life of Israel, which is known as the post-exilic period. And the reason I want to look at that period is because uh, it's a time where we begin to see God renewing a people who have been decimated by the Babylonians, but more importantly decimated by their prior disobedience to God's covenant. And now we're seeing that God is beginning to take steps to renew uh, the Jewish people, these exiles. Now, sometimes when you talk about, when you hear people talk about spiritual health, uh, sometimes the phrase spiritually dry comes up. And I, I don't know what most people mean by spiritually dry, but here's the way I want to use it when I use that term. You know, in the beginning of our service for our call to worship, we looked at this call to work, these verses that come from Isaiah 35. And uh, we're given a picture of being in a wilderness and having this wilderness and this dry land begin to blossom and turn into a flourishing garden. And uh, God is describing the period of exile, the period away from Jerusalem, the period where they can no longer worship in their temple and offer sacrifices to God in their temple. That is a period that is spiritually dry for them. That is their wilderness period. And God is promising through the prophet Isaiah and he promises through other prophets as well that one day, This dryness will not last, but one day there's going to be spiritual renewal and there's going to be a blossoming and there's going to be singing and there's going to be rejoicing. God is promising renewal to these period, uh, to the people in in exile in this spiritually dry time. 
And here's the other thing, if you notice about that verse in, verse, uh, in Isaiah 35, God also promises this, which I think is the most important promise. He says, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And what he's promising is, you're going to see how majestic I am. You are going to experience my presence. You see, spiritual vitality and spiritual renewal, I think, is always connected with worship and the glory of God. And therefore, we should, I think, do what one uh, book I read suggests when writing about worship. This theologian says, from time to time, the church should take stock of that which is most central, most important, most vital in our common life together. And I know many of us are in different places spiritually. Some of us may not have been to church for a very long time. Some of us have, may never have been to church. Uh, some of us have maybe been to church for a very long time, but still we feel a little bit disconnected from God, and there's no life in our hearts and no life in our uh, spirits. Uh, we should probably do what this book is suggesting, that from time to time we should take stock in terms of what we consider to be most vital, most central in our lives. And so today what I want to talk about is something very simple. I want to talk about the importance, the centrality of worship. Now, the, the first six chapters of Ezra, uh, it's basically giving a history of what happened when the exiles returned to Jerusalem to rebuild this temple. And in our passage, it tells us that the very first thing that they do as they return to Jerusalem is they do what? They build an altar. They build an altar. Now, in the temple, the altar is the place of sacrifice. It's the place where you make offerings. It's the place where there's atonement for sins. And it was an important part of their worship because it is where the divine and the human kind of meet and come together. And therefore, in the Bible, the altar is oftentimes a place where God would interact with his people. For example, Noah, he built an altar after the flood subsided, and God makes a promise, and he says, I will never strike down every creature again. Abraham, he built an altar when he first enters into the land of Canaan, and God makes a promise. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Elijah, when he is battling the prophets of Baal, what does he do? He builds an altar, and then he calls upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord comes down uh, with uh, fire falling down upon this altar. In Isaiah 6, God calls Isaiah to a prophetic ministry to uh, do very difficult ministry, but he does it after a powerful encounter where a burning coal touches the lips of Isaiah and says that your sin is now atoned for, and the burning coal, where does that come from? It presupposes an altar. You see, the altar is significant, especially in the Old Testament, because it is where God speaks oftentimes. It is where God acts. It is how God interacts with his people. The altar is central to the worship of God and to the people. Now, as a people, they're coming back to Jerusalem, and they're, they're rebuilding this temple. The first thing they do is rebuild the altar according to the law of Moses, and this is notable for a couple of reasons. First, it tells us that they were trying to be faithful to the covenant. Covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties, but it's not simply a business agreement. It's a relationship that requires a, a sense of intimacy. The mo closest analogy is probably the marriage covenant. The way God relates to his people, the way God has intimacy with his people, the way God is, has bound himself to his people is by way of covenant. And there's stipulations to the covenant, just like as a husband and wife make vows to one another, I promise to be faithful to you. So too, both parties make these vows to one another, saying, I will be faithful to you. Now, here was a problem with the people of Israel. They violated the terms of the covenant. That's why they're in this position of exile in the first place. They neglected the covenant. They neglected the word of God, and therefore God, uh, in a sense, judged them and uh, had, the, had the Babylonians come and 
exile them away from their land. But here, as they come back to Jerusalem, they build an altar because they want to return to the covenant and renew the covenant and be faithful to the covenant. The second thing it tells us is this. They prioritized the worship of God. Notice, the text tells us, when did they buy the materials and lay the foundation? They did it after they built the altar. Uh, Moreover, when do they build the wall? They build the wall later in the book of Nehemiah. Now, outside of my apartment, I, you know, I kind of like watching construction. And uh, when I walk my dog, if there's construction, I'll like pause and just kind of stare at what they're doing. Uh, across, outside of my window, they're building this new building. And I like to just kind of stare and see what they're doing. And my wife kind of gets annoyed because like the kids are like in the back and I'm not really watching them. <laughs> I'm watching the construction. Uh, I think I'm a pro now because I've been watching this construction for a while. And it's interesting, when you, when you start a building project, the first thing they do, they, they built this fence around the construction site Uh, I assume, so that people don't go in and out whenever they want. Uh, The next thing they do is they they get an excavator. They dig into the ground to prepare to lay the foundation, to prepare to lay the concrete. Now what they're doing is they're they're actually laying the foundation and laying the concrete, and it's really, really interesting, really fascinating. Now, I imagine if you are uh, going to build a temple, you you probably follow similar steps, right? Uh, Maybe you build a wall around the site in order to keep foreign invaders out to protect the site, to protect the area and protect the land, protect people from coming in and taking it. Uh, You probably want to build the foundation first so that you can set up this temple being rebuilt. But the fact that they don't do any of that first, but they build the altar tells us something important, that they prioritize what they thought was of supreme importance was not their security by building uh, the wall, and it was not even obtaining the materials to build the foundation. The most important thing for them is to build the altar because they want to make sure they are in right relationship with God. You see, it's important to understand, I think, this idea of covenant if uh, you want to understand the spiritual life of Israel. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament uh, through, and there's some things that it, it just maybe it doesn't make sense, and it's like, why would they do that? But if you understand the covenant, then you begin to understand why they did that. Uh, for example, you know, in Joshua 5, they're about to enter into battle to take a, uh, take a certain city. And before they enter into battle, do you know what they do? They have all the men get circumcised, right? All the men get circumcised. Circumcision as an adult, I think, is, is supposed to be painful. Uh, I think it takes a while to heal from it. Uh, it's probably not a very wise or strategic thing to do, to have all of the men circumcised before you're about to enter into battle, but why do they do it? They do it because that's an important sign of the covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Circumcision was a way to say, I want to uh, be faithful to the covenant, which is essentially their way of saying this. We are not going to win this battle based on our military might. We are not going to have victory because of who we are. Victory only comes from the Lord. We need his presence. We need him to be with us, and therefore we need to be faithful to this covenant. When the exiles returned to this site of the, old temp, uh, of the old temple that was destroyed, they set it in their hearts to build the altar first. Because they know if there is going to be renewal for this people, God has to be with them. They know if there is going to be renewal, they have to be in right relationship with God. And so they make sure that they prioritize the worship of God because they know what they need most is the presence of God. Now, 
they, they know this too, that there, there are many challenges facing them. Verse 3 says this, right? Why, why did they set the altar in its place? It says, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. The fact that they're afraid of the peoples of the land tells us, you know, wouldn't you want to do something to keep the peoples of the land out and, and protect yourself? But no, they don't do that because, again, they realize the most important thing is for God to be with them. In Zechariah 2, uh, there's this vision of the temple. And in this vision, it's a temple without walls. And the reason it doesn't have walls is because God says, I will be to her a wall of fire all around. And through that vision, God is essentially saying this. That wall is not your ultimate protection. I am your ultimate protection. And they understood this, and therefore they prioritized worship. Now, in the West, uh, we, we probably tend to overemphasize our skills. We probably tend to overemphasize the right strategies in order to be fruitful uh, in ministry. But, you know, sometimes the right strategies are not the ones that make sense to the world because when it comes to things pertaining to the kingdom of God, there is a spiritual reality, right? For the exiles, it would have made sense if they built the wall first, they chose to build the altar. It would have even made sense if they chose to lay the foundation first, but they chose to build the altar. They understood if they wanted to see God fulfill this promise of renewal among their lives, amongst their people, they had to prioritize the covenant and the worship of God. Recently, uh, a couple of us, we went on a prayer march to a couple cities. Uh, We went to London and Berlin and Bulgaria and Turkey. uh, And why did we go there? We went to pray and to worship in those cities. Uh, It wasn't the typical... typical kind of mission trip that you might be used to hearing about where, you know, you rebuild houses or you do some kind of uh, VBS to kids or outreach or youth camp or something like that. Uh, We did do a little bit of outreach to a gypsy community, but the majority of our focus and the majority of of our time was spent essentially in prayer and worship. Uh, You know, we actually kind of joked that this this is kind of a hard trip to explain if you weren't on the trip because it almost sounds like it was a vacation. It's like, oh, you went to London, you went to Berlin. That's awesome, right? You went to Bulgaria, Turkey. Uh, but it really wasn't a, a vacation. We didn't go as tourists. Uh, we, came, we went with a very intentional focus as the people of God to bring the presence of God through prayer and worship in these cities. We prayed for governments. We prayed for churches that uh, were perhaps spiritually dead and needed revival. Uh, We prayed prayers of repentance for past sins in these particular nations. We prayed for greater unity and partnerships amongst the believers and the churches that were there. We prayed for so many things. And we would sing songs of praise unto God wherever we were, right? Any public space. We went to parliament. We went to these uh, quote-unquote touristy areas, and we would sing songs and worship and pray. You know, this one time in Bulgaria, we were just kind of in the mall having lunch and hanging out in front of a McDonald's, and then uh, the missionary there is like, let's sing. <laughs> we started singing in front of a McDonald's. <laughs> now, I can see plenty of people, uh, w- maybe here even, saying, you know, that, that's a little bit weird, right? That's a little bit weird. Why are you doing that? Is that all you really did? You spent all this money on these airplane tickets to, to go to these cities to just pray and to worship. Uh, you didn't really do much then, right? Is that all you did? But here's the thing, you know, if we're actually ultimately dependent upon God to bring renewal, the most important thing to do is to be the temple of God. The most important thing, then, I think, is to pray and to worship for an area so that God's presence comes to this place. 
You see, when the exiles built the altar first, what does that tell us? It tells us they prioritized the worship of God. Today, you know, it's easy to be cynical about most things in life, I think. Uh, it's not hard to be discouraged by the news. You think about the future, uh, very uncertain, very shaky. It's not hard to be discouraged by the future. There's a lot going on in terms of deep divisions uh, along political lines, along racial lines, along ideological lines. Uh, things are starting to get a little bit tense, violent. Perhaps more violence is on the way. Doesn't seem like the government's going to provide a solution. Some people think, you know, we, it's got to be education and we got to properly educate people. I'm not sure if that's going to be the ultimate solution. I'm sure a lot of people in our country probably doubt that the church can provide a solution. Why? Because so many expressions of Christianity in America are intimately tied to our politics now. We look to the future, it doesn't look very good, does it? And we might think, is worship and prayer really going to do anything? You know, we need renewal here. If we just pray and worship, is that really going to do anything? Shouldn't we build the wall first? Shouldn't we build the foundation first? Why are we building the altar first? And, you know, we, maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but we probably think that. Why? Because, uh, to be frank, most of us probably don't prioritize worship and prayer even in our own lives. We'd rally, rather do something and get something done. You know, I remember a while back, there's a little bit of backlash uh, after all of these tra tragic things happened and people began to tweet right, thoughts and prayers. And, you know, I get it. Right? It sounds like an empty sentiment. You don't have to tweet it. You could just pray. Why do you have to tweet it and tell everybody right, thoughts and prayers? But there's a little bit of backlash, and people said, you know, what is that really going to do? Thoughts and prayers. If you're a politician, do something about it. Right? If you're tweeting it, do something about it. And even though people may use it as an empty sentiment, Prayer itself is not merely an empty sentiment. Prayer has spiritual power, and we should be tapping into that power all the time. If you're discouraged by our local community, by our wider American community, by the global community, and you desperately want renewal in these places, the one thing we should always be doing as the church, as the people of God, is we should be praying. Other institutions can offer many other things, and do many other things. But the church, we could do other things too, sure. But foundationally, what we should be doing, we should be praying and asking God to bring renewal. Of course, I'm not saying that's the only thing we should be doing. But think about this. When God touches a person or a group of people with the love of Christ through the gospel, that comes with a lot of spiritual resources. A lot of spiritual resources. Think about this. If you really believe that God reached out to you across the aisle and loved you, you have the resources. It should enable you to be able to reach out across the aisle and love others as well, right? Otherwise, what is the gospel message? It is just some inspirational story that uh, we use to make us feel good. Rather than being a message that confronts us and calls us to strip ourselves of our desires so that we can love other people. You know, in a climate such as ours, people will probably love those that they want to love and that they believe are lovable. Sometimes that means 
Uh, it's easy to love victims of oppression. It's easy to love people who agree with me and my ideology and what I stand for. But I think without, without the cross, without the gospel, without being changed by the cross, uh, there is no logical reason why one should reach out across the aisle and love somebody that they should actually probably hate, right? You know, Christianity calls us to do that because that is what Jesus did for us. Uh, you know, just last night, this is in my notes. I'm, like, talking off the cuff now. You know, just last night, you know, this is a documentary on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, about this man named Daryl Davis. And a couple of articles have been written about him. He's uh, an African-American musician. And uh, basically, he's, he's known for befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, I think, I forget what the documentary's called. I think Accidental Courtesy or something. Uh, and basically, he, he just kind of goes around and, uh, you know, it started where uh, a Klan member was, like, trying to find, rent a bus to do a Klan rally, and they couldn't rent a bus because the bus company didn't want to support that and said, no, uh, you can't rent this bus. So somehow contacted this African-American man named Daryl Davis, and he says, you know what, I'll let you use my bus. <laughs> Can you imagine that? He said, I'll let you use my bus. So they used the bus. They did the rally. He invited them over to his house after the rally, and <laughs> they all came in, and he, he actually befriended them. That's, that's insane. That's crazy. That's crazy. But over time, as he befriends them, he, it's an amazing story, but more and more people, uh, they, they left the clan. And he's like, I wasn't trying to convert them. I wasn't trying to do anything for them. I just wanted to understand them and uh, listen to them and hear them. And what that did was that opened up a way for them to get to know me and for them to hear uh, my perspective. And over a course of many, many years, many of them have left the clan. It, it's a really uh, amazing, touching story. And as they leave the clan, what they do is they give him uh, their old robes, uh, their clan attire. So he has like this closet full of <laughs> friends who left the clan and closet full of uh, robes from the Ku Klux Klan. Now, it's, it's interesting, interesting, the documentary didn't really touch upon, uh, like, his Christian faith, but there's other articles that talk about his Christian faith. And uh, he has this one conversation with a Klansman. He's like, look, you claim to be a Christian. Why are you burning the cross? And that's a good question, right? Why are they burning the cross? <laughs> and the Klansman answered, he says, uh, well, we're burning the cross because we're lighting the way for God to come. And Daryl Davis says this. He says, you know, that's interesting because, you know, my God lights the way for me to come to him. Ooh, right? I think that's the gospel. I think he understands the gospel. You see, it, it's, not, uh, it's not about just kind of befriending and loving people and getting along with people that we naturally get along with and people that we're supposed to like. But the gospel has a deeper challenge to actually be able to reach across the aisle and to love people we're actually supposed to hate. That's hard to do, but of anybody, if we really do believe in the message of the gospel, we at least have the spiritual resources do, to do that because we experienced that from God himself, right? God reached out to us. Uh, this moment that we live in, is, is, it is interesting. Uh, even though people like the idea of love, I don't know if people have the ability to love in the radical ways that is necessary because... We've become a society or a culture that has built identity and purpose upon being personally satisfied. 
Uh, I don't want to get too technical or academic here, but uh, I think this is an insightful point. You know, there was a, a social scientist named Philip Reef, and he wasn't actually a, a Christian. He was a secular Jew, and he used to teach at UPenn. He passed away now, but uh, Philip Reef, he, he made this observation a long time ago, and he's, he's somebody who specialized in Freud and studied Freud, but he says, you know, what has emerged in perhaps like the last hundred years is what he calls psychological man, and the best way to understand what he means by psychological man is basically uh, to understand how uh, people derive things like identity and purpose. And he would compare, you know, he has religious man, political man, economical man, uh, right, he has all these categories. And basically before, people would derive identity from different places and different things. So it would be either, uh, you know, can I, am I making enough money to support my family? I derive identity from that. He says what's interesting about the emergence of psychological man, people now are starting to uh, derive identity and purpose from being, from, from their own pleasure. So he has this famous line and he says, religious man was born to be saved, but psychological man was born to be pleased. Uh, if that's true, we, we are a people who live for pleasure. What's interesting is his observations on how that impacts religion and <laughs> He says, you know, people didn't used to go to church to become happy. People used to go to church to have their misery explained to them. Uh, that's, that's so insightful, I think, so interesting. You know, there's a book, which I never read, but I, s I saw the title, and it's called The God I Want. The God I Want. And that's probably a very unique way, just historically speaking, of approaching and thinking about God. God is this way because I want him to be this way. That's, that's a product of psychological man. But you see, the important thing is not knowing the God I want. The important thing is knowing the God who wants us and demonstrated it through Christ. Now, why, why do I point that out? If, if our entire uh, culture is built on kind of being pleased and seeking experiential pleasure in what we do, love is going to be kind of hard. Loving God is going to be difficult. Loving neighbor is going to be difficult. Why? Because doing that oftentimes means that we are not going to get what our hearts desire and what we might be longing for and what we want. You know, generally speaking, believers in America, according to right, different surveys, don't really prioritize just Sunday worship compared to other generations, and surveys have shown, and it's not just nominal b Christians, but just even committed members, uh, Sunday worship attendance is down significantly, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, I don't know how much of it applies to our particular community or our context, but youth sports apparently is a big reason why uh, people don't go to church. They want their kids to be involved in youth sports so that they can go to a good college Football, right, which is on Sundays, is probably another reason I got to catch the game. Although if worship is on Sunday morning, right, then you can catch the game <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> no, there's probably a lot of reasons for this, but here's a spiritual reason. It's probably misplaced priorities, right? Uh, renewal probably isn't going to happen when things like youth sports become our priorities or things like our kids getting into college becomes our priorities, Renewal happens when we make worship our ultimate priority. Some of you may say, 
yeah, but you know, sometimes it's a little bit inconvenient. Uh, sometimes it's, it interrupts my plans and my weekend plans and my daily plans. But you know what? I think it's supposed to interrupt your lives. It's supposed to interrupt your schedules. It's supposed to interrupt your weekend. And I think that's part of what actually makes it meaningful. It's a way to say, God, you are worthy of interruption, right? God, you are worthy to interrupt my day. You are worthy to interrupt my weekend. You are worthy to interrupt me anytime you want to interrupt me because you are worthy. I read this unflattering article in The New Yorker about Carl Icahn. Uh, I don't know if you know he, who he is, but he's, this, uh, he's a billionaire investor. Very long article, very long form, as is common in The New Yorker. But, uh, you know, the article shows him to be this very ruthless businessman. Uh, but there is this one part of the article that I thought was really interesting. Uh, I guess he has so much influence and he is so powerful that he can actually reach anybody he wants to reach uh, no matter what. And he kind of expects it, right? So he'll call somebody and they'll say, oh, this person won't be available for two weeks. And he's like, why? Where are they? Well, they're on vacation. So interrupt their vacation. They're going to want to talk to me. That's kind of bold, right? That's kind of. But people do it because they're afraid of him. They're afraid what he's going to do if uh, they don't take his call. Now, it, on a human level, if somebody like Carl Icahn right, is worthy of interruption, shouldn't the God of glory, the God of love, the God of mercy be worthy of interrupting our lives as well? Surely God is worthy of that. And I think when our lives are interrupted, I think when we come here on a Sunday morning when we could be having Sunday brunch or doing something else, I think during the week, even in our daily prayer lives where uh, we take time out of our weeks, out of our days, not to be on our phones, not to check anything, but just to sit and to pray, I think it tells us, God, you're worthy of that. You see, the exiles, they built an altar. Afterwards, they built the temple because they want to say, God, you are worthy of our worship. Before our, uh, our own security, before our own lives, before building our own houses, you are worthy. So we want to build an altar for you. But you know, today, we don't have an altar, do we? We don't even have a temple, do we? You know why? God provided it for us. He gave us the altar. He gave us a sacrifice. He gave us Jesus Christ. Christ was offered upon the altar of sacrifice for the atonement of our sins so that our guilt would be taken away so that we can now be renewed and be the people of God and be reconciled to him once again. Through his death, through his resurrection, now what does he do? He makes the church the new temple. And therefore, as the church, as the new temple, what is our task? How do we build the altar today? I think we worship God. It is that important. Where are we individually? I don't know. We're all in different places, right? Maybe uh, we come here, but we don't really feel connected to God. If you long for renewal in your own hearts, in your own spirits, you've got to prioritize worship and prayer. Where are we as a city? I don't know, probably not great, right? Well, if we want to see renewal in New York, what do we have to do? We've got to prioritize worship and prayer. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if God is who he says he is, and if God is real, if we want renewal, it comes from him. 
comes from him. And he calls us to prioritize, I guess, the covenant once again, to prioritize worship and prayer once again. You know, let me end with this. Uh, you know, Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 to 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think it's worthwhile to read the entire chapter, but I'm not going to do that. But basically, he's saying this offer everything that you have, all of your gifts, to build up the body, to build up the church. Build up the temple of the Holy Spirit. Prioritize the worship of God. Prioritize the work of God. Prioritize your relationship with God. Because as we do that, God promises to bring renewal to his people. And that that is a promise we can uh, hold firm and stand upon because he's already begun it, right? by be giving us Christ. He's already begun the process of renewal because Jesus came, died, rose again from the dead, ascended, sent the Holy Spirit, and now the Spirit dwells within us. Let's pray.